quick note. After we recorded this episode, we changed our show notes page to eurovisionsongcontext.fireside.fm. Enjoy. Welcome to Eurovision Song Context. This is a podcast that tries to get to the bottom of what makes an ESC submission successful. Why do we love the submissions we do? And what do they say about us? It's a tour of taste, identity, national and otherwise, and the ins and outs of ESC. In every episode, I chat with a special guest and we talk about a few old ESC submissions we really loved or really didn't. It's episode one. I'm Bradley Dalton-Oates, and I'm joined today by Dr. Alexander Mantzaris. He's an expert on political voting collusion and bias in ESC. We'll talk about that and then chat about some iconic submissions from 2006, including Lordi, Las Ketchup, LT United, and so on. I always encourage you to go to the show page and watch the submissions before we talk about them, at eurovisionsongcontext.wordpress.com, but this time you might also want to visit the site to see Dr. Mansaris's study, which has a nifty interactive collusion voting graphics set. Welcome! Thank you very much uh, for inviting me on your podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm really excited about it. Um, so may I call you Alexander? Or do you prefer something? Yeah, so you can, you can even call me just Alex. Alex is great. All right. Alex, if I understand right, you are a Bayesian stat- statistician. That means to evaluate the probability of a hypothesis, uh, you look at prior probability. Is that right? Yes, that's uh, right. I used to do quite a bit of Bayesian statistics, but recently I've been working also in network science. And I like to think that the approach that I took towards the Eurovision Song Contest and analyzing the voting patterns used a little bit of both. So in a lot of my research, I tried to work not just on estimating probabilities of collusion, between countries based on their voting patterns, but also to look at the overall network and the structure of the voting patterns as collections of countries together as different blocks. So there's a lot of interesting insight that can be produced from statistics and also from network science. And I try to bring the both together in a data-driven manner. Um, right. I mean, so I think all Eurovision fans, there's like that all that old joke of who votes for who. Um, when you were studying this, were those kind of old tropes, were they um, confirmed? I mean, it must be hard not having a, an idea of what will happen when you study something like this. Yes, it was quite illuminating. And we found some very, very interesting patterns that we didn't really expect. So there's an interesting one, especially that for the UK, that the UK is at a disadvantage from not receiving that many favoritism from other countries and that they feel like they're a little bit outcasted. And there's a lot of interesting things that our research actually showed. So one of them is that the UK doesn't actually receive a significantly low number of votes. It's that it receives a significantly low number of prime votes. Okay. So the way that the scoring system works in that there is a bias towards getting the first vote from every country, you get a 12 points rather than some other one or twos or threes, is that the UK amasses a lot of low-grade points rather than being excluded but didn't really recently receive too many 12s, uh, 10s, and the higher upgrade votes that have an upweighted value of if you're in the first or second position. Second, the other thing is, is that in the older, in the previous data sets, the little older ones, you had a lot of the, the UK dominating, especially Ireland dominating the competition for decades. Sure. So I think it comes as a contrast that it kind of falls from such a high position and that the relative performance isn't as good as what it used to be, given the expansion of so many more countries and large population blocks. And the other thing to note is that in the ESC, it's not really population representative. You know, you're, if there's many small countries out there, it's one large United Kingdom versus many other smaller countries as well. And they need to understand that it's not proportional representation there. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Um, I'm assuming, I actually should know this, that if you're, I'm assuming that your study 
only looked at um, voting patterns in the grand final as opposed to um, this, the semifinals. Yes, we did not look at the semifinal data. Excellent, excellent. All right. Um, so I know that you've I've, I've looked at your your bio, and I know you've done research on a massive range of topics, um, including bats and DNA sequencing. <laughs> um, what do these things have in common with Eurovision, like from a just from a professional standpoint? Well, I have to say that 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 was interesting aspects of my research in the early stage of my research. Um, since 2013, I've been mostly dealing with big data and network science, which is amassing uh, information from emails, from blog posts, and I did a lot of work on Twitter. And looking at structures of messages on Twitter and social media is where I started to become interested in seeing what I could do for the Eurovision. And the thing is, is that there was a great study um, done in, in Glasgow at around the year 2011 that I seek to develop on. And I was a little bit shocked at this question of whether there's collusion between countries in the Eurovision Song Contest hadn't really been established. And I thought that there was a lot of work to be done, and especially because it's one of the largest annual events on our planet. Yep. It's not a small-scale thing. Nope. So I'm surprised at how much of uh, a lack of professional examination has been allocated to it. Although in the social science sphere, people call it a, a, a type of barometer of identity in the European nation. So I thought that it's a really important thing that should be given more attention. When you say barometer um, of identity, what do you mean? Like, what, what would you be able to do with that? if that makes sense. Like what application would there be for having that kind of barometer? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I read this from the political scientists who probably can answer that better than I can. So I was reading their work and this is how they attribute the results of the competition on having such an important uh, implication for how the identities are evolving. I myself am not an expert in that, but I it was inspiration to consider the ESC results to be important enough to think I need to develop a tool here so that they can actually analyze it in a better manner than what they had previously. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Like, do you see that European identity, just from your own um, studies, do, do you think that European identity is evolving? Well, definitely. And if we just look at the ESC results, we can see, let's say countries like Germany, what they have is that they have a lot of votes from the network diagrams that go towards other countries and its surrounding. So in a way, it kind of acts like a dilution of the, of the results because it doesn't really fit into one cluster of countries that are kind of voting together. So in a way, we can see that the UK and Ireland vote for each other in high and with loose indications of collusion, we see Greece and Cyprus yeah. and sometimes even Albania forming a collusion and that we can find identity blocks. And if you look in the networks of my uh, research, you can see I color different regions in, in the southeast, the southwest of Europe the Nordic bloc, the Slavic bloc to the east, and we can see different groups. So countries that are in the center don't really belong to a niche block of identity in order to piggyback on that bias. And it's one of the reasons that we can assume then that they're being disadvantaged in getting high scoring uh, votes from other countries. Oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Can you just really cover what the difference is between bias and collusion. I mean, when I think of collusion, I think of a, you know, two juries that have made a deal with each other to kind of swap votes. It, would I be right? Yeah, so that's that's really directly exactly what it is. It is that when we have bias, we assume there's one country that has bias to vote for another country. A collusion, we assume that if the bias goes in both ways, we have some type of an indication that it's almost like an evolved agreement that one country is going to vote for the next and that they have to keep up the partnership to establish that vote in the subsequent competition. I, I mean, I like the idea of... Um collusion as being bi-directional bias? Like as long as it's in only one direction, it's just bias. It's when it's in uh, both directions that you have a problem. Exactly. There we go. Okay. So I imagine that um, 
just the sheer amount of available data made this like a really exciting thing for a statistician to to study. And, you know, I know we'll get into this later, but I know that you are American, but also Greek. Um, I'm assuming your co-authors, you know, aren't. I, I'm assuming they're like, you know, American. Did they, I don't know, did they, if you're not a fan, how, how did everyone take to this study? Just, yeah. Well, that's that's interesting. Uh, yeah, they did not really know much about the European uh, song contest, the Eurovision, much at all before I introduced it to them. But after I told them how big it is in the world that even Australia participates now, it covers time zones, it gets hundreds of millions of views. I showed them the previous research and what low-hanging fruit this is to make an impact. Yeah. And they were re- then really excited to... Uh, become involved and try to take this research a little bit forward. And after our first success in publishing that in the Journal of Jazz, we then worked on that to publish in a Springer Journal of Computational Social Science. And then after that, we didn't work on that research anymore because uh, both those students that worked with me have gone to uh, other pastures to develop their careers. But um, yeah, it was interesting that they did not know anything about the Eurovision. And uh, once they learned about it, they found it to be interesting that they can actually, there exists a competition of artistic merit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you, um, I I find these, I find, I guess, geeking out with somebody who likes Eurovision. You know, you have a lot of, it's clear that you have a lot of respect for it, you know, not only from a numbers perspective, but also as like a global event and, and, you know, like a, a, a thing worthy of respect that exists in the world. There is like a, a clickable resource that's super awesome. It's on our site, but uh, we're going to really dig into it now. So the the Tableau app, again, is amazing. So you cover the different voting systems, and I'm quoting here. You say, we have three essentially different schemes which are best treated separately, allocated, sequential, and rated. Can you explain what the difference is in these, please? Yeah, so when we look at the research and we actually look at the competition, it's very interesting to see how sensitive the competition results and how the competition, let's say, uh, takes place based upon how the scores are allocated. So in the recent one, uh, we can see that there's effectively, there's let's say imagine there's 30 countries that can uh, participate Um, What we actually see is that not all of them can get scores because there's a rank there and where we have the the best country receiving a 12, the second a 10, then an 8, so then it's 7 up down to 1, and the rest of the countries do not receive a point. So there is a a benefit here. Um, Now, the thing is that that scoring scheme did not exist for the whole period of the competition. There were different schemes there. So one of them that was allocated was there was an allocation of three different points and you could allocate them to different countries based on the number of judges. So you could have two judges actually allocate those points to the same country Mm. to give an even added benefit. So because there was this ability to just allocate these different points and you can have duplications of this, you could have had different types of biases that would be much more, let's say, attenuated um, than with this one that we have. So with this scheme, I can imagine that the organizers were trying to distribute the votes a little bit more evenly and kind of dilute the favoritism that they saw taking place. So that even if they had one or two favorites because they were biased towards them, they would have to delegate the scores of eight, seven and six, etc. to some other countries rather than only allocate it a couple of times, leaving no one else to receive points outside of their bias. Right. Okay. so (laughs) the system is um, I don't want to use rigged is a terrible word, isn't it? But the system is intended to produce. A certain result, right? Like it's been it's been set up in a certain way, yeah, intentionally. I think I don't think it was. I think it's intentionally to make it more fair and to reduce the bias that they saw taking place. And what's amazing is that even with this uh, change in the scoring scheme to reduce the bias, the bias still becomes statistically prevalent. That's right. what's amazing. 
is that if we had the scheme where it was a winner takes all from each country and each country could only give one score to another country, it would be extremely biased that the, the bias would be absolutely obvious. So enforcing the countries to vote for other ones outside, even if they have a bias, is one step in that direction. But it's amazing that it's still not enough, <laughs> right? Oh, That's yeah. what's, um, it's funny, it can bypass all these efforts. So there's been three voting schemes, yep. um, and we can still see the bias in every single one of them. And there were the previous schemes allowed more bias than the current one. Even if we can imagine that the current one is biased, there's more avenues that are more biased than this one. Sure. I mean, presumably, the more bias there is, the less interesting it is as a TV show. I mean, I'm assuming that's the way it is, but I'm just guessing. Yeah. Well, we can imagine. I mean, maybe some fans would like to see countries play out a, a competition that's like a football game <laughs> rather than it be an expression of artistic merit. So we don't know what the fans would like uh, per se. Uh, maybe it would make some fans uh, entertained <laughs> right. and some fans less entertained. Fair enough. Fair enough. So there are three time periods listed in your table. So um, if you do go on and click on in, onto the Tableau app, which again, amazing, You've got um, 1960 to 1980, so we had seven countries participating, 1980 to 2000, 12 countries participating, and 2000 to 2016, 22 countries participating. So I don't want to say they're roughly doubling, but let, you know, by the time you get from, from 12 to 22, that's a pretty big leap. I mean, can you talk about the time periods, Yeah. Yeah, so let's say the 1975 to the 203 was probably the longest period we had a single voting paradigm taking place, which means that it's the most, let's say, prevalent there. So the funny thing is, is that before there was quite a few changes and some voting scheme would only last one or two years. And so we have these different paradigms and the, the, it's interesting to see how they actually can have shaped the competition and how we view the identity of these associations on which country is giving which other country a vote based on the artistic merits that okay. each one has. Yeah, talk more about that. I totally want to hear it. Okay, so when we look, let's say, at the 1974 voting scheme, which was tried for just one year as a sequential one. So sorry, that'll, is, that'll be the year ABBA won. Yeah, 1974 is a, is a big year for Eurovision. Am I right? Exactly. Okay. And they had that voting, particular voting scheme for, from 1967 to 1970. They tried it again in 1974 because it looks like the 1971 to 1973 did not go through. So for, for the audience who's listening is that each country had 10 points and they could allocate those 10 points to other countries, either in one batch where one country would get 10 and then the other countries would get zero from that country. So let's say uh, we could imagine Holland giving 10 points to the UK and then zero elsewhere, or could give 10 different separate countries 10 points each, or could give five points to Ireland and five points to the UK. It could delegate them how it saw fit. Yep. And that's an interesting way in which it would actually also reveal the bias more evidently, correct? Yeah, it also sounds like a way to make, to really tick off other countries. I don't know. It sounds like a way to make people yeah. angry. <laughs> yeah, it is a very, very public display of bias there since we're talking about something that could be completely arbitrary based on artistic merit and we're not sure because it's hard to define. So our minds would always go to some type of political or affiliation of some sort. Then the 1971 to 1973 is where each country gets a vote as a sum of two jurors. So each juror has a vote of five, four, three, two, and one, right? Mm -hmm. And they allocate a, a sum. So the two jurors, they're almost like a type of uh, aggregation yep. to even out the differences. They would give a sum of those two votes uh, for each country, and then that would go through and it was rated. So there wasn't a constraint on it. Each country 
uh, would get votes from another country's two jurors as an aggregation. So each juror had to effectively rate another country, one to five, and there was another juror from this country, and that would get added up, and then they would do the complete sum over that. And that's a different scheme that was tried for a couple of years, but it was never attempted ever again. (laughs) But what, so like, presumably, I don't know, like, if you had two jurors from the same country, I mean, how often did those jurors also vote in a block? I mean, how often did it happen that both Greek jurors gave Cyprus five points, the maximum number of points. I mean, was that a thing? Well, the thing is, is that the unfortunate thing is that that scheme was only tried for three years. Okay. So it makes it a little bit hard to really pin down whether it was significant or not on enough years. There's not a time window. I mean, we can have a suspicion for it, but it's hard to really pin that down. Right. Okay. Um, Yeah. Not statistically significant. Yeah. There's just not enough data for that. Yeah, okay, small sample size, I'm with you. Now, certainly, people will ask me, I I, I imagine I will get upset emails if I don't ask you, if we had used the regime from 1975 in 1974, would ABBA have won? Unfortunately, that is a hard one to say because the, the nature of the voting was so different. It's not as if we can infer, it's hard to infer because the countries didn't have the same voting expression they didn't they weren't able to express their voting pattern in the same way it's just it it, it is why the voting pattern makes such a big effect it's um it's it really shapes the competition and it's also why some of the competitions that took place later on um whether the judges were involved you had a, a merge between the judges and the audience whether it was an audience only voting time sure um those things really shape really how the competition and what type of artists you attract from every country to take part and what i find to be interesting from this is also which voting scheme not only the display of the bias but after all this research i developed a new question which was this what voting scheme actually attracts the best artists to say that it's worth their while to actually take the time and participate? Oh, I could talk about this all day long. Did you, did you come up with an answer? No, I didn't. But that, it's one of the reasons why I thought I, I looked at some of the data to say, which of the competitions attracted some of the best artists that were the most famous? Okay. So in 1974, we had ABBA. In some of the earlier years, we had some of the more popular, even especially from Ireland, internationally famous. Sure. We had voting from the Athens competition in 206 that brought in famous people like Las Ketchup, but also produced famous people later on from that. So I wanted to find out as well what made 206 very interesting, what made 1974, and then previous competitions that made it worthwhile to attract top-tier musicians, which maybe is not so much the case as it's not as frequently seen anymore. It's an interesting thing uh, to think about. It's the play to win, but does that actually deliver a better experience to the audience? That's the mm-hmm. question I have is what is better for the audience to engage them, to entertain them, to make them feel like they should actually take their time to participate in voting as an audience member as well? Do they feel like their vote matters? Um, which is an interesting question as well. It is an interesting question. And I look, look, I can imagine that, you know, everyone, well, no, not everyone. Some people say, look, the bookies are always right. You don't need to watch Eurovision. Just like pay attention to the bookies. Like presumably, you know, they, presumably there's some mathematicians that work for the bookies that put in the voting collusion then or bias or whatever it is, but voting patterns, jury voting patterns. And then they presumably look at, um, fan activity, right? I don't know whether they do that through Twitter or some other channels, but they must have an idea of how the, you know, the public will be voting on the night. They have to. Do you, do you know anything about, what, you know, how the sausage is made on that? Well, yeah. I mean, there are some biases that can be, that are relatively consistent, but the who is it going to actually win the competition 
from our initial research, we did not really find enough of a pattern to say who's actually going to win. So the audience, there might be a good indication uh, from the semifinals to help uh, understand who's going to win the finals, but the judges don't actually act in accordance to that um, mm. to a degree that's enough to predict accurately the top positions. So there's quite a bit of variability there. And the odds, uh, the threshold on the odds actually seem quite spread out. Mm. So the funny, funny thing is, is that the audience, though, and the, ju- ju- the judges um, do play add in quite a bit of variability. And there might be some biases, but... Um, that would only work within, let's say, a certain range. But some of, there was many surprises in the competition, uh, even given the semifinal results. What were the surprises? Well, let's say, of course, it was the Lordy with the Hard Rock Hallelujah. That was a surprise. Um, there was a competition by Anna Visi uh, in that same com- uh, results. Mm. Um, there were quite a few surprises. I don't think ABBA was a surprise from the 1974. Uh, but even though, let's say the one from Greece, from Rekinzis, this, uh, with Sagapo uh, in 2002, very popular in his own country, uh, very classic style. You would imagine given that he ticked all the boxes to win with quite a lot of points, but it didn't really turn out in the same way as expected. So there's a lot of a lot of uncertainty actually in the competition, and it's not as clear cut as it is for horse racing to bet on, or even other aspects such as uh, political elections, etc. Sure, I will get to the blocks actually because I really want to talk about the blocks. So the <laughs> blocks as of 2000 to 2016, with 22 countries participating. Um, I'll just read them out for listeners who can't see them. Uh, so Southwest, that'll be Portugal, Spain, Malta, San Marino, Andorra, Monaco, Morocco, and Italy. Northwest, United Kingdom, Ireland, Belgium, France, Luxembourg. North, Iceland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland. Central, which is gray, Germany, Austria, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Slovenia, Czech Republic, Hungary. Southeast, Greece, Montenegro, Cyprus, Albania, Bulgaria, Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, and Turkey. Uh, oh, sorry, Macedonia, uh, Rom- uh, Romania, Serbia, Israel, Yugoslavia, and our last region that's east, which is Russia, Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, Poland, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia. Fine. Um, so, I'm the most interested in what happened from 2000 to 2016, just because of the just because the number of participating countries jumped. So, is this the regime that you currently think that we're in right now? So, this this study ends in 2016. Do you think this is accurate for today? Yeah, I do think it's quite accurate. What's interesting is that we have an Eastern Bloc with Azerbaijan, Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, and Armenia that all have. Uh, bias and collusion between themselves in this period. And they form a group with some overlaps because they connect through Azerbaijan that votes for Turkey, and Turkey connects other countries that vote for Bosnia. And you get some overlap with Bosnia, with Croatia, Serbia, and then with uh, Northern Macedonia. And then we have some breaks in other areas of the Balkans with Romania, Moldova, and then you have Greece, Cyprus, Albania, and then you have the Nordic countries with a strong bias and a very, very strong bias uh, between Norway and Sweden. Um, and then we also have the UK and Ireland. So there are different blocks. But what's interesting is that we don't actually see any of the gray countries, such as Switzerland, Germany, uh, Slovenia, and so on, participating in any of these uh, collusions because their, their votes are spread out to too many neighbors and mm. that the collusion cannot be evident. So although they have collusion, it's not significant because they're spreading it around too many people to be obvious. Oh. Whereas if you... Okay. Yes. So that's the funny thing is that the geography actually plays a, a role into hiding the collusion that actually exists. Because it cycles around too many countries, so it's not evident that it's actually within its, again, within its geographic region, 
but there's just 10 of them and you can only give out so many votes. So once again, it comes down to the voting scheme on how many votes you can actually allocate to the, your partners in Eurovision voting crime, let's say, that you can delegate to. So it's, um, and then the funny thing is like, when there weren't that many countries, we had, a, let's say the 1980 to 2000, we did have a collusion between France and Ireland as well. And we had a collusion between uh, France and the UK. But as more countries came in, these votes from France got diluted. It's not as if the, vote, the bias doesn't exist. It's just that France now gives them other people as well. Yeah, okay. Okay, that, that's, that sounds very sneaky. Um, so we, we've got these six blocks. When I look at these blocks, I think everyone assumes, rightly or wrongly, that these blocks exist either because of some kind of affinity. So not collusion, let's just say bias. You know, it's either linguistic affinity or geographic affinity. You know, there's some kind of natural reason or maybe historical, um, you know, there's some kind of reason that, that these countries would have a bias. Do you see it that way? Or, or do you think this is like purely mathematical? I don't know. Like I, there's some of these blocks I don't see a ton in, all, in common between the countries? Well, a lot of it is a little bit geographical. So what I've understood here, although I'm not an expert in the identity and culture between all the countries, but what we do see is a geographic component between neighboring countries. For instance, Moldova and Romania, from what I gather, they're part of, let's say, different blocks. And the, one is a green group for the Eastern and the other one is in the Balkans. And we can see a, a connection between them and we, Greece and Albania share a border. Yeah. The Nordic countries are all neighboring each other. The UK, France, and, you know, they used to have a bias with Luxembourg. Mm. We don't see a bias with Luxembourg now. And we don't see a collusion with Luxembourg just because the number of countries around it. So the number one uh, indicator for bias from what we found is actually geography and looking at neighboring countries that probably build bridges for the linguistic aspects that you mentioned. But it seems to be that the geography seems to be the biggest driver for this because we can have different languages around and still uh, in different cultural aspects, but the geography seems to drive this more than anything. Hmm. That makes me feel, you know, comforted somehow. So... From what I was saying is that there's one thing to look at the bias, but one thing that we don't really pay too much attention to is neglect, which is significant and not upscaling the votes, but downscaling votes. For instance, in the period of 1980 to 2000, Ireland voted significantly low for Portugal consistently. Hmm. Switzerland, significantly low for Portugal. Sweden voted very low for Spain, Croatia very low for Sweden, and Austria very low for Norway, and the U United Kingdom very low for Greece. That was a significant low bias. So we only speak about the high biases because that's what drives the win, but we saw for some reason don't really seem to consider the neglect of one country towards another to be that important, which I find to be strange because it's actually that that matters. And if we were to compare which side matters more, I would say in terms of making the competition more fair, well, we could try to dampen and dilute out and restrict people's admiration for their neighbors, which might not be feasible and actually might generate backfire. But another thing that's quite positive is why do countries significantly vote less on other, yes, they might not be their favorite due to some differences, but why would Malta significantly vote less for another one, for instance, or France for another country, you name it. So that's one association I think would actually be the most important to drive a more entertaining culture. You know, having people express their biases might be a way for them to vent out their admiration and display something, which might not be negative. Right. But the restriction of that might come at a cost. Whereas what I actually find to be strange is why is there significant neglect? Hmm. There should be some variability there and there shouldn't be a consistent uh, downvoting. That's actually it just doesn't attract as much attention. 
But I actually think that's to be of more interest. Well, I can see a, an, an affinity, a positive affinity for some countries. You know, that I can guess what affinity they might have with each other. Um, it's difficult for me to think about it in the opposite direction, I suppose. Yeah, because we don't really think of that intuitively, but it has the same effect. Is your country significantly neglecting another one? And I think that's more insulting than it is for, let's say, Ireland to vote for the UK significantly positively. Okay, Ireland might like the UK. Sure, that's their bias. Great. That's not a, a, a thing to be reprimanded for. It might be natural. And trying to penalize the country for doing so might not be kind. Whereas, why would one country not vote for another? Now, that actually is an expression of being unkind, right? So that's something I think the voting scheme and the, the competition organizers could take into account a little bit more seriously than actually trying to penalize countries for being positive towards another country. Right. I mean, how, how would you dampen that effect? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting idea about how to actually engineer the, the voting scheme in this way and the concern. So having everyone get a point kind of defeats the purpose because we want there to be a winner and we want there to be some kind of meritocracy there in order to drive this. So this is the question of what attracts the artists. So what attracted artists to participate so vividly in 202 and 206, etc., which were very successful competitions? So how do we drive the enthusiasm of the artist? That Because in the end, it's a competition. We have to think about what the artists want, which will drive the audience to come. It's a concert, right? So we have to make sure, do the artists want to be able to stand above and shine? And this is their moment. If every country gets a point, the artists might not be that interested to participate. If, you know, since Azerbaijan, Georgia, Montenegro, Poland, Romania, and San Marino were um, accused of, of collusion as opposed to bias this year, would you expect, would you expect the same patterns next year, I suppose? I mean, I guess what I, no. yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, these kind of penalizations do make an effect in that that'll, it'll have a ripple effect and it'll cause a type of anxiety there. And I don't think that that's good though to lay as a shadow over the competition, the participants. I really don't think that that, I think that has a, a more of a negative shadow and it attenuates this idea that there's actually a type of um, sort of competition, but without that type of, uh, of, of gentle competition with a sense of humor to it, rather than there's a fact that you know, it perceives like there's a type of uh, threat of a, a theft. Oh, so I would actually yeah, yeah. work yeah. They, oh, you stole it. You stole my votes because you just had that collusion. And that's not the way it should be. And that we should actually be thinking about why some countries just don't vote for other ones when there was plenty of good ones. So they're looking and ignoring other countries. And we need to think about the voting scheme there. And on the lower tail, we don't need to think so much about the upper tail. We need to think about the lower tail there. That's the problem, really. Excellent. I would be willing to have a full discussion about the lower tail, like, on another day. It's like, it seems like a source of endless fascination. If you were looking at the East Bloc, and then we'll get on to our submissions, Russia, Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, Poland, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Estonia, if you had to guess, um, since Russia is out and Belarus is out, would you think that that block would would stay the way it is? I mean, minus the two countries, or would you think that they would, um, you know, the remaining countries would join the other blocks? Exactly. It will completely re-engineer the blocks and the biases. So chances are, just like what I'm kind of alluding, the biases will always exist. Trying to stamp out the biases, I think, is a an effort that will produce more repercussions than positives. I don't think you're going to actually get rid of the biases, but actually make disgruntled people having to quench their thirst to display publicly their virtue for their neighbors, which is not a bad thing. Uh, but the thing is that, yes, that uh, the green block, the eastern block, the way I have it in my papers, that will probably get reabsorbed. Maybe Estonia with Finland into the Nordic block. Um, I don't know about Lithuania. Maybe it'll go towards... Uh, and provide some bias towards countries like Poland that doesn't really seem there and for Germany, et cetera. Mm. So yeah, it's going to really re-engineer that kind of voting blocks and 
and clusters that we have. So the maps will really change. Um, I don't really know if it's going to change to some degree the, let's say, I'm not 100% sure it's going to really change the outcome yeah. for other countries, other than it'll give them a small boost from the countries that have formed new biases. Sure. Okay. So now is when we get to the your um, <laughs> your ESC. I don't know. Would you say you said that you remember these? These are memorable. These submissions for you. Would you say that you liked them or you just remember them? I would say a little bit of both, and I also remember the competition. So in the end, we want to be able to have a competition that doesn't feel like it's a competition where there's winners and actually losers because that defeats the purpose of art. We want to be able to express yourself. That's why it makes it different from athletics. Uh, it's not a football game, and we don't want to bring that type of hooliganism, right. that kind of mentality, even if there's no violence. But we don't want to have that type of that sense that there's uh, one side that won and that you left like uh, uh, you didn't take something that you needed out there. So I would say that the 2006 competition was memorable because of the quality of the submissions that came, the orchestration of the of the scene, the sort of balance of the sort of effects and the theatrical component to it. I would say that it was my the, my favorite competition. Not just a set of submissions. And you watch every you watch every year. Have you been you've been watching you've been watching like year on year for a while now? Yeah, I mean, there's some competitions I've watched more than once, um, because, just because I found them to be so memorable, yep, um, and enjoyable and funny. You know, I liked it when there was a sense of humor from some countries. Then instead of trying to um, to win, they would go in there with a joke, such as I was uh, remember the. The countries, we are the winners of the Eurovision, which was oh. just a song saying that we're the winners. And we, we will, we <laughs> and will, was, we will, we will, we will get there. Um, we will get there. We'll go <laughs> submission by submission because um, this is, it's always fun to geek out with people over submissions. I love doing this. I, I have to note that you are a Greek American and that this Eurovision 2006 was hosted in, in Greece. Yes. Um, I guess, does that m give it more affinity for you? Uh, do you have more affinity because it was held in Greece? Yeah, that's interesting to think, whether it was a bias. But I actually, as a statistician, I try to remove my own bias. You know, it's easy to look at data <laughs> and introduce your own bias there. But I actually believe it was one of the best competitions uh, that I remember. And the... The reason is this. Some of the competitions were very provocative. I mean, the Lordy winning when you had a heavy metal, gothic metal with that kind of costume set really shook up the, the Eurovision idea that anyone could come to participate and you never knew which sort of cultural expression was going to win. Mm -mm. Um, so we had a big surprise there. And then we also had Les Ketchup, which brought in a very, very good quality song. Uh, we had the Romanian competition, which could have been considered one of the best, most powerful song of Torn a Row. It was a very strong song, very well um, executed as well. I actually think that overall, the breadth of the of the expression there. It had some submissions and how smooth the way that the audience was very engaged. I think it was one of the most, uh, in terms of the audience engagement, in terms of televoting, it was number one for the time. Televoting's gotten easier now, but for the time when it offered it, it was one of the easiest and best televoting um, options. And people were more engaged in the competition than years before that. So I think for many reasons, even if there could be a bias because I supported Greece and, you know, have an affinity for it, I think it was one of the best competitions of all time, purely because of the audience engagement and the range of different submissions to that competition. It had such a broad range of, comp of submissions yeah. That, I really think that it made it a really colorful. I do. I, I get that from this competition. Like, I, this competition, I, I didn't see it live. This is before me, before my interest in Eurovision. I, I do have to say, like, <laughs> well, first, I, I, I want to get one thing out of the way. Do you believe that there's a such thing as, like, national identity? So, you know, this, there's a semifinal from this Eurovision, 2006, where they've got um, the Greek gods singing the songs of your historical songs of Eurovision, right? I mean, 
they've got like Zeus mm-hmm. singing uh, Volare and, um, you know, and, and that's a very, it's very performative, right? Like this is who we are. We will have uh, the Greek gods sing you some Eurovision classics. It is tacky and lovable. I, I don't know how to describe it in another way. So, um, yeah, I know. Do you do you believe there's a such thing as a national identity, right? Do you believe that Greek people are like, let's say, hospitable and caring and outgoing? I mean, is it? Would you subscribe to that? Well, I mean, there, in terms of national identity, and then uh, sort of tendencies, and I'd say uh, notes. I mean, I take a very statistical sense on this, and and the idea that. There will always be people in a country that have a national identity and then people that do not feel strongly associated with a national identity. Yep. There will always be that. Now, it might be that in some countries it is a 80-20 or a 20-80, a 50-50, and it's a scale as well on how strongly they feel towards their country. And there are statistics for this and people that do survey this and anthropological research. Do you think that some number of people, let's pick a number like 80%, 70%, 60% of X nation will exhibit a certain number of, of, of predictable traits? Let me ask it that way. Well, yeah, I mean, there can be some number. We've got X nation that might have certain traits. It's, I think in the sociological, psychological, they've got narrative scripts. So mm. there's almost cultural aspects is script theory. I'm not an expert in script theory, but I've read papers that refer to it. So there's sort of linguistic scripts that are either adopted through tradition, culture, or schooling from stories or myths that sort of get engraved into a population that they continue to express it their whole lives. And these can produce different effects in society, which Hmm. is really interesting because in a way those are to some degree artistic expressions. So in the way that even artists, when they participate in the Eurovision how do they affect those scripts? Yes. How do they affect the people and their representation as well? Because the myths, the stories, these are cultural artifacts that can push things in one direction or the next. So they're incredibly important. And now it would be interesting to see how those cultural scripts associate with the statistics and the surveys on these identities and whether there are certain affiliations on whether someone's considered to be hospitable, truthful. And yeah, there's a lot of different questions about it and how those things change over time and what creates those changes. And it could be to a large degree movies, um, songs, uh, books, and even politics or the news and what's reported. So there's a lot of things that go in, but the most important one that I've sort of come to conclusion is, is that it's a kind of developing and evolving entity. And that even if we do have certain traits, those can change drastically. For instance, if we hear what some of the say, more senior citizens of our society say, is that our current society is nothing like what they grew up with. Although it's changed gradually, that it's not too much of a shock. But viewing today's society in the lens of their past, it is a big, significant shock. So it can change. And I do think art and especially music has a big role to play in the future steps and directions that each country takes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I suppose in addition to the scripts, there's like, you know, the iconography, there's a lot that goes in um, to culture, I suppose. But like, so here we have, just because people really do need to go watch this, Domenico Modugno, so Volare by Zeus, Bucks Fizz, performed by Athena, Dana International, performed by Aphrodite, ABBA, performed by Charities, and um, My Number One, performed by um, an ensemble of gods, uh, in addition to Maria Menounos. I completely forgot that Maria Menounos existed in the world and hosted this Eurovision. I didn't know she was she could sing. And I forgot that, that that love shine a light was like a thing at the time, which I think of as very saccharine. Do, do, do you remember love shine a light? Well, it's been some time. I haven't seen that recently, but I remember the the, the concept and some vague images. That's, that's uh, that means it got to you. That's fine. So we have this Lithuania, your first entry, um, LT United. Uh, we are the winners. And I knew about this. I knew about this song. I'd never seen it. And I watched it for this episode. And I find that it's really um, cheeky to use a, a Britishism. It sounds like a child's taunt, like kind of like na 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 na. 
but it's apparently supposed to be like a football chant. Um, and I didn't get it. I thought it was great. It's got this line that says, uh, Sorry about my French in advance. Chantons les mêmes chansons because we've got it going on. So you've got like the spoken word rhyming in two languages. Amazing. Um, what 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 vibe does this give you? I mean, I think this is the gutsiest Eurovision entry just based on the fact that they were like, how are we going to win Eurovision? And they just came on stage and said, we're the winners. And that was it. That's an interesting take. I took it as different. I thought it was a play on the song by uh, the We Are the Champions song. Oh, fine. Fine. <laughs> and that's the, what I thought, you know. Um, so when there was that We Are the Champions. Uh, yeah, yeah, lyrics. Queen, yeah. So um, by Queen. So that was... No problem. And I, instead of saying we are the champions, we are the winners of this competition, um, and it wasn't taken exact. And I thought that the dress code that they had there was pretty funny, so I thought that was a joke. And I took it by, uh, didn't take it literally as well. I took it that it was a, a funny joke, and I thought that because they're singing in English, and that was a very famous song in the English-speaking world, that that's what they were playing on, and I thought it was really funny. Um, so it's funny that some people found it to be uh, cheeky, but I thought it to be hilarious when I made that association. And I kind of liked that uh, joke and their dress and the dancing that they had was pretty funny too. My, I, do you know what? It gave me Robert Palmer vibes. I don't know if you remember the Simply Irresistible video, but there are six, this this video, this 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 act is six men in suits at microphones and man it's got to be hard to perform in a in a three-piece suit with a tie right like in the heat oh, when it was at that competition for sure and they've also got six people which tells me that like somebody wanted to invite his friends you know because the maximum number on on stage is six so um <laughs> I feel like these are some dudes having a lot of fun, but apparently this this act got booed. Apparently it's very rare for Eurovision acts to get booed. Yeah, I mean, I found it to be kind of uh, worrisome that there's this booing, you know, instead of seeing the humorous side of it, you know, mm. I'm just worried, you know, things become too much of a competition and that kind of lack of slack uh, for people to find the humor in it, right? So... That's a general thing that I, if anything, there could be more of a kind of a find the humor and type of thing. So when I was in the UK, when I was studying, I kind of learned that from a lot of my peers um, at the time that had this culture of trying to find a joke or mm. when they were in the pubs at the time. You know, sometimes I would get into one of those kind of more serious conversations, but every, every time there would be someone derailing it, trying to find something funny. And I never really understood that, but I kind of learned and started to let that soak on to me and adopt that culture of trying to find something funny of it, you know, that banter and some light laugh or something quirky about it to say on a spin. And I really found that to be great. Um, I wish there was more of that in the world of trying to find a little bit of a joke and an uplift <laughs> here and there. Yeah, yeah. I also think it's, um, it's a funny thing. Instead of playing, let's say... Um, uh, trivia quiz at the, at a bar um, on quiz night to try to find like jokes on anything you can. So I was really I was really shocked that people were booing it. I thought it was funny. I mean, I must wonder if they were trying to make a joke and they got actually booed. What was in their minds? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, apparently it went over really well in Lithuania. I mean, um, it won the national final with. 32.6 thousand vo votes. So it, it got 16,000 more votes than second place. So Lithuanians must have loved it. They were like, okay, this is what we're going to send. And then um, it came in sixth at the end, you know, in, in the final. So that's not bad. That's not bad. No, it's I, I not bad at all. I can't think of another song like this since. And I definitely had a cringy moment, I think worried for them. I've written down in my notes feelings like I am worried for this act just because of the hubris, right? Because I know that Eurovision fans can get catty and I'm like, ooh, if they think you're disrespecting the Eurovision, like this could go bad. But yeah, it didn't. It's it, that it, kind of sense that, that there's a type of uh, uh, working on some type of edge, which is a shame, you know? This is why like different, different periods were better and... I remember even like in the early 90s, the competition or in the mid 90s was a lot more, let's say, relaxed. 
um, people would come up, have a nice song, and it was something you just watch in a nice event that we could all sit around and there wasn't this tension around it. And I wonder if that's because the number of countries that came into play. Mm. I wonder if there was, wouldn't be that much tension if it wasn't such a big event in terms of uh, that much, that many things to win. Because if you're the winner, you're actually considered a, a, a big star for a large population block. And that the musicians take this seriously because it could be a make it or break it for their careers. And it adds a lot of attention because there's so much uh, to win. And you also get the host. And it's almost like an artistic Olympics, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. More like the Olympics than other singing competitions, let's say, maybe. I I do. Hmm, this is also the age, you know, a lot of people watched Eurovision. The, 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 the age that you're talking about, like where people were seated, you know, it was a seated audience and it was very kind of somber middle-aged people in suits going out to like, let's say, it's like the Venice Film Festival or something, but for music, you know, Eurovision turned at some point. And I don't know, maybe people hadn't caught up. Maybe, maybe the sense of humor was too much. Maybe it was too soon for this act. I don't know. You've also got Lordy. Oh my goodness, you've got Lordy. I was literally dreading that somebody was going to bring this submission. And it, here we are first in Lordy. Did you like this submission? How do you feel about this submission? I actually liked it quite a bit. I actually voted for Lordy to win that competition. And I was really happy that when they won, I found it was a nice um, sort of achievement. A lot of people were dismayed by the winning and they, they, there was actually a sort of forensics on the aftermath of the win by Lordy into trying to figure out why they won. And they found out that the people that were part of this subculture would vote three, four, five times from their phone just to make sure Lordy would win. They were more enthusiastic about such a victory than other countries were when they were doing their televoting from the audience. Because in that competition in 206 in Athens, the audience was the most important part. Um, and in this competition, I mean, I was a little bit shocked about why they would bring in more influence from the judges just because of what happened. I thought this was a great thing in terms of expression and diversity of a character for there to be a different nature of song to come out. And it might not have resembled the song entries of the 80s and early 90s. But it was something that existed of the present time and for it to be celebrated, which I thought was, um, okay, it's great. It can be something different next time. But this exists in our societies and there should be no reason why <laughs> we shouldn't embrace um, a community expressing itself. Um, and this could have been all other when you, ways When you around. say community, do you mean the Finnish community or the, sorry, the Finnish no, community or do you mean the, the metal, the metal community yes, or just the like, the, yeah, okay. Okay. So, yeah, exactly. So there's, a, what was amazing is that it produced a community to express itself that was cross border as well. Right. Aww. So we had a type of collusion here that wasn't cultural. So if, if all the countries express the same type of music, you're only going to have cultural express, uh, let's say cultural biases between geography playing a role. Right. If now we finally allow different cultures to come out that are cross border, we're going to find different types of biases to come out. I mean, so, you, so you're trying to tell bias. me that cross border culture is metal like you have seen the future you know no, no, i don't think that that is it it's just one of them for instance if we had a, a type of song entry that was into waltz music right or yeah, we had a okay. eurovision song competition that was folk music or polka let's say this polka that's very kind of nordic and kind of let's say in poland as well polka music right yeah. And it would take in all the different countries, not because if it's uh, of the same language, but it's that cultural that they aspire to. Like whenever there's a marriage or something or some celebration, they're yeah, playing yeah. polka music. So we would get that from every country across the Eurosphere. Awesome. It is made them happy. That's the key thing that I think we're losing track on is that the audience is supposed to be happy and that artists get a chance to express themselves 
and get this feedback from making the audience happy as well. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that loot players or like, I don't know that you're going to get that kind of cohesion in anything other than metal. Like I'm trying to think about any other genre other than metal that could bring that to you. I don't know. DJ Tiesto come in with his electronic music, right? Oh, I love DJ Tiesto. Stop it. You're killing me. Absolutely. There we go. We have DJ Tiesto. I mean, if he comes up and it's a rave song or electronic techno, and then all of a sudden, boom, he becomes very, very popular in there, and it's different. And you're going to get collusion from people saying, yes, it's the Eurovision. Finally, I have a music song that I like to because this is what I hear in my techno clubs, right? So you're going to get some bias there and collusion and all the... People who like going to these techno parties are going to vote biased on the song. So it's just diverting the geographic bias to a cultural bias based on something else. I mean, I think that there's also this thing about Eurovision where it's like, finally, I have a voice. And I think it happens every Eurovision, maybe not for the winner, right? But mm-hmm. somebody will sing in some language you haven't heard of. Um, I think I'm, I'm thinking of like Spirit in the Sky, which they sung in Sammy. I want to say that was Norway. Or there will be something in every Eurovision that's very specific to identity that makes you feel happy. I know the happiness that you're that you're thinking about and you think finally somebody got their day. And I guess if Lordy got their day in 2006, if Metal got its day and that community got their day and it made people happy, why not? Exactly. That's the that's the key thing that should not be forgotten. Even if some some people win, some people lose, some people say something a little bit outrageous. Okay, I mean, there's that's not the whole point. Is that everyone has their voice, and that's effectively an expression of venting. Yeah, fair enough. Fair en- no, absolutely fair enough. So you know, when you turn this on, it says music music and lyrics by Mr. Lordy, which I find amazing. Um, the Finland hat, I'd completely forgotten about that. He, you know, he sings, Mr. Lordy does sing in a Finnish hat that is, it looks like something left over from, um, New Year's. The line, it's the Arocalypse, I had completely forgotten. Uh, the costumes are genius. I have to give it that. You could tour forever. You could tour, they could be touring until they are 80 or 90 years old in those costumes. Like from a marketing standpoint, genius. Uh, the opening wings, because the wings actually open at the end, which I had completely forgotten. And, um, you know, I, I was really thinking, like, if this had been my first year of vision, I never would have watched again. However, after I was watching on my streaming service, you know, the popular one, after I was watching on my streaming service, uh, the video that came after this was Seven Nation Army, which I do love. And they didn't they didn't go together too badly. Do you know what I mean? They could have gone in the same album. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, do I have any notes about Lordy? Yes, this held the record for the most points until it was beaten by Fairy Tale by Alexander Ryback. Uh, So I guess big shout out to violinists and fiddlers out there um, with 387 points. And um, in in May of 2006, Lordy broke a world record for karaoke songs with about 80,000 people singing Hard Rock Hallelujah Hallelujah in uh, in Helsinki. So that's charming. I can't imagine singing this in karaoke, though. I'm I'm not going to (laughs) lie. All right. Last submission. Spain Las Ketchup. You, I think you just said earlier that this was an actual group Las Ketchup. Did you know about Las Ketchup before this submission? Yes, I did. Um, they were funny enough. I, I live in Florida now, uh, where I was originally, um, and they had a, um, a kind of a couple of uh, pretty uh, important hits. So they're from Spain and they were representing Spain. And I remember, you know, they had a couple of hits that was like similar to the Macarena period. Mm-hmm. Um, so that had been really, really popular. Um, so they had the Bloody Marion and had their competition there in the Eurovision. I thought it was really nice and their music is kind of light. Um, and yeah, it was, I thought it was an enjoyable song and the, the kind of decor and the night was also interesting, and it was a pleasant song to to hear. Um, you could even hear it. Like, I also think a success is that when songs from the Eurovision appear on the radio, they can be heard on the radio, that means that it was a success. It was a good song. 
Yep. And they were playing that Os Ketchup song um, quite a few times. So, I mean, I think that that was, it was all, you know, the genre of Latin pop. I also thought it was nice to hear. It was enjoyable and light. I think that this song is, sounds to me, now I am not, I'm an Italian speaker, I'm not a Spanish speaker, and I'm certainly not Latina. But um, this sounds to me to be fairly authentic. So now we've got, there's kind of like a big Latin onslaught at Eurovision. And, and it's just like, I don't want to say onslaught. There's just like a lot of Spanish speaking from countries you don't expect. And this sounds great to me. It's got um, a cool lounge vibe, which which is very cool. Um, I think they're singing Duty Free in the chorus, which made me giggle. Like, um, so that's <laughs> great. And the office chairs. I'm always a big fan of when a country has a ton of money for staging and they just blow it. Or maybe they don't have a ton of money for staging. I don't know. But somebody at some point was like, we are going to bring out some red office chairs, like from the most boring call center you have ever experienced. Just like some $20 <laughs> office chairs. Those office chairs were amazing. I don't know if you saw Serbia last year, but I had the same thing when like Constratka brought out her soap. I was like, oh, she's going to do this whole thing. Three solid minutes with a bar of soap. I was I was on it with these office chairs. They were amazing. I think I think that's brave. I think it's brave. Yeah, I liked it that it was uh, it gave you a nice vibe that that's a typical office. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. or an airline. I think, with it, you know, <laughs> for sure, they're either in an office on a break or they are on an airline flight. I don't know where they are having these uh, these Bloody Marys, but I'm all about this song and I will listen to this again. This has got a very easy vibe. And I will be completely happy that you brought Lost Ketchup into my life. <laughs> All right. So that is that is it for us. We have looked at your submissions. I am so happy that you brought them. And um, thank you for coming to, to, to guest. Well, I'm glad that you invited me. It was a great discussion. Yeah, I'd be super excited in, on some future date to talk about... Um, to talk about the tale and all kinds of other things that we touched on, but didn't get, didn't get full time for. I'm, I'm hoping you'll come back sometime. Yeah, that would be great. We can talk about not only the bias and the collusion, but the neglect as well. The neglect, for <laughs> sure, the neglect. And also thank you for this study, which I think really adds a lot to, to, to just like Eurovision and our knowledge of it. I'm glad you appreciate it. <laughs> 